Thank you for listening to the Writers Guild of Alberta podcasts. The following episode was recorded in 2020 as part of the WGA's online reading series, sponsored by the Rosé Foundation. The audio quality may differ from recording to recording. We want to thank the authors and hosts for their permission to share these audio-only episodes with you, and thank the Rosé Foundation again for their generous support. Hi everyone, my name is Sadie McGillivray and I am this year's Summer Programs Assistant at the Writers Guild of Alberta. I am here virtually with Doug Vandenbrink, the author of The Crimson Dimension. Doug is a local author living in St. Albert. He's a husband, father, and grandfather who works for an Edmonton land development company. He started writing speculative fiction over a decade ago as a hobby and made the leap to publish his debut novel, The Crimson Dimension, in March of this year. His novel is available online, as well as being carried locally by Indigo West Edmonton Mall and Audrey's Books. The response has been great, having received many positive reviews. So, Doug, it must be extremely exciting to have your first novel just be such a hit with everybody. I mean, I know I absolutely loved it when I was reading it, so I can't imagine what anybody else thought. Yeah. Well, that's, that's great to hear that you enjoyed it. I'd just like to start off by thanking you for hosting me today. Uh, thanking the Writers Guild of Alberta and the Rosa Foundation for putting this series on. Um, but yeah, but back to the response I've been getting, uh, it's it's been really good. I, I put it out there uh, as a goal uh, to publish, you know, the story uh, with the support of family and friends, and uh, never expected the uh, you know the uh, the uh, feedback that I would have gotten. So it's been really rewarding. Uh, I didn't go out seeking that, but it certainly makes it well worth while. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually really curious how you first came up with the um, the premise for this novel. It's it's really odd story. I uh, I one night I had uh, gone to bed after watching The End of Days, which is a movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Gabriel Byrne about the mm-hmm. end times. And uh, uh, I woke up in the middle of the night and I had the story. And it was so vivid in my mind. I jotted it down on a piece of paper, went back to bed. And years later, digging through a box of, uh, of old items as I was moving, uh, my wife uh, took a look at it and said, you know, what is that? And I'm like, oh, it's a, it's a story I thought of. And she said, well, you've got to write it. So that's, that's where it came from. Well, I'm definitely glad that you did write it. Uh, <laughs> I think it's fantastic. And so speaking of the book, what are you planning to read from it for us? Um, I'm going to do a reading from uh, a little ways into chapter 10, which is, which is the chapter where uh, things really start to move forward. All the introductions are, are kind of through and stuff, and, and we really start to get into some action. Uh, so considering we are getting in uh, that, uh, that far in, I should give a little bit of background. Uh, so Matt, who is the protagonist, uh, he's an impulsive uh, New York uh, University student, and uh, he's struggling with direction as to what to do with his life. All of his friends uh, are graduating and moving on and have plans, and, and he's just lost. Uh, so we pick up this story actually in Brazil, uh, where Rob, who is Matt's best friend, just got married. And uh, to afford the trip, Rob took a job from Victoria, who was an art major, uh, to take some photographs of, uh, of some statues in a remote Brazilian church. So besides the paycheck that he's looking for, he's falling quite hard for Victoria and really wants to impress her with... Uh, uh, with his uh, uh, photography skills here, uh, if you could even call it that uh, for him, he's using his cell phone. Uh, so we join Matt as he arrives 
uh, at the church in the remote village in the middle of the Brazilian jungle. Matt strolled across the village, past the large stone well, and stopped before the church. While taking a few shots of the bell tower, he noticed dark clouds forming to the east. Not wanting to get caught in the threatening storm, he headed inside to finish his tasks and be on his way. In the foyer, he looked around for someone in charge so that, as Victoria had suggested, he could get permission before snapping any shots inside. The last thing they wanted was for him to have come all this way, only to be asked to leave for disturbing someone's religious experience. Finding no one in the entranceway, he looked through the second story uh, doorway, or sorry, he looked, through, he looked through the second doorway into the sanctuary. Two rows of wooden pews, enough for about 40 parishioners, faced the wooden pulpit in the front. Hello? No answer. With no one to interrupt, he took some pictures. As Matt stepped over the threshold, the sanctuary came into full view, revealing an awe-inspiring sight. Dust motes sparkled and danced along the beam of sunlight shining through the stained glass window. As if by design, the light shone directly on three statues. Positioned in a stone alcove, the image of the Savior stood majestically between two winged angels. Despite Matt's beliefs, the sight brought goosebumps to his skin. The rest of the place ceased to exist. He made his way past a set of candelabras and almost tripped over a wooden bench as he approached the sculptures. Although smaller than they first appeared, they were amazing works of art even Matt could appreciate. The three-foot marble statues were perched on a much larger block of stone. They were incredibly detailed and so lifelike. How could anyone possess the skills needed to turn chunks of rock into something so beautiful? Although the statue of Jesus was a masterpiece in its own right, it was the pair of angels that stole Matt's attention. Their large, muscular frames supported powerful wings that towered above their heads and extended down to the ground. They appeared ready for battle with their massive two-handed swords. The beings were a complete paradox of weakness and power. Their naked forms made them totally vulnerable, but their weapons argued otherwise. He'd never seen anything so amazing. Maybe this is what Victoria meant when she talked about art inspired by religion. Despite his views on God, chills ran up his spine. Matt envisioned the angels in an epic battle against the forces of evil. Demons screaming as the warrior's blades sliced through flesh. Severed limbs flying in the stench of their vile blood filling the air as it painted the landscape. He laughed at the thought. Matt often wished he'd grown up in a different time, a simpler time, when scores were settled with steel and the spoils went to the victor but his damsel would have to be won over with photos and dinners. He readied his mighty cell phone. He photographed the statues from as many angles as he could manage. While taking close-ups of Jesus's face, he noticed some dark debris on the right eye. Wanting the photos to be perfect for Victoria, he decided to clean it off and retake the spoiled pictures. As he brushed the dirt with his index finger, the mark smudged. What the hell, he muttered. Matt gulped, he didn't swear in a church. He, looked, he took a quick look around to make sure no one had come in and hurt him. Thankfully, the sanctuary was still unoccupied except for the furniture and the afternoon sunlight. When he refocused on the statue and the annoying spot, it glinted through the lens. It wasn't dirt, but something wet, perhaps a liquid used to keep the marble clean. The bright sunlight made it difficult to know for sure, but whatever it was, it had to go. He reached into his backpack and pulled out his spare shirt to use it as a rag. 
The majority of it came off on his shirt, but there was still a small smear left behind. He stared at the stain on the shirt, and it was hard to see against the printed pattern, uh, but it was definitely red. Why would anyone use red soap to clean a white statue? Matt took a step back as another red droplet formed. What? Had it come from him? Shit, he checked his fingers for a cut, but there wasn't one. He had to get the statue cleaned up before someone thought he was vandalizing it. When he looked again, the red liquid was trickling down the statue's cheek as if Jesus was crying. He stood utterly still in disbelief. This isn't happening. There was only one explanation. Very funny, he called out into the empty room. Where are the cameras? He looked around but saw none. You guys can come out now. He was being pranked, right? He walked around the small church looking for Rob, the likely culprit. No one appeared and his throat tightened. The joke's over, he said louder this time. He searched the statue for wires, hoses, and any other way the tears could have been staged, but found nothing. A shiver ran up his spine. A solid chunk of marble shaped like Jesus was bleeding. Victoria, he called out. Again, nobody. This is impossible. Of course, he'd seen news reports of crap like this, images of the Virgin Mary and pieces of toast, crying statues and all the other miracles, but he dismissed them as wishful thinking, or in some cases, the church's desperate attempt to strengthen its numbers. Well, whether it was Rob or a hoax staged by the church, he wasn't going to be played anymore. He grabbed his water bottle from his backpack, gulped down the last of his water and held it under the flow of liquid. The sound of approaching footsteps announced he had company. Finally, time for the punchline. Just in case the charade was going to continue, he jammed the bottle and his shirt into his backpack and spun around. Pardon me, an old priest said as he approached. I was told we had a visitor. I came as fast as I could. I am Father Alonzo de Ponte. Hello, I'm Matt. I was just taking a few photographs and admiring the architecture. Is something the matter? Father Devante asked. He looked troubled. His gray eyes seemed concerned. He was in his 70s, if not older. His hair was white with traces of the black it had once been, and his thin face showed evidence of a hard life. The cross hanging from his neck swung like a pendulum as he walked to Matt. How had a priest in this backwater village come to speak such good English? Nobody else he'd met this far back had even bothered to try. He was clearly part of the prank. Um, no, everything is fine. He'd play along a bit longer, perhaps find a way to turn the joke back on the old man. Interesting statue you have over there. The priest focused on the statue. Dio Santo, Devante just stumbled and grabbed the pew for support. He spun to look into Matt's eyes. What have you done? He demanded as his face paled. Matt's stomach dropped. The fear in the priest's eyes were real. Nobody was that good an actor, which meant this wasn't a TV show. It was really happening, and he was in trouble, maybe deep trouble. I didn't do anything, Matt pointed at the statue. It was like that when I got here. The priest stared at his outstretched finger. It was still red from when he'd first touched the liquid. You must not leave, Devante ordered. You do not understand the significance of what has happened. You must remain here. Matt took a step back. No one was going to tell him what he could or couldn't do, especially not some old priest. Too many times his father had used scriptures and religious arguments to manipulate Matt. His face flushed. Not a chance. He started toward the exit. Father Devante grabbed his t-shirt. Please, don't go. 
get your effing hands off me. Breaking free from Devante's grip, he started for the door. Wait, son, please wait. Wrong choice of words. I'm not your son, Matt reached the door. You have the blood on you. You can't take it. You do not know what you're doing. The voice of the pleading priest faded as Matt ran out of the church, down the street, and past the well to the edge of the village. The priest's shouts, now in Spanish, were accompanied by the voices of the villagers. He looked over his shoulder as he ran. A couple of men had taken up the chase. Matt's dash became a sprint, and he soon left the men behind in his dust. He spun around, now running backward, and held up both middle fingers. F you. He ran full out as far and fast as his legs could carry him before his lungs demanded that he slow down. Even at this slower pace, he would be back in town soon and could put this fiasco behind him. His mission was done. He had the photos for Victoria. He'd grab the first bus out of there and meet up with his friends at the airport. A vehicle rounded the corner and he turned to see an old rusted pickup closing the gap. The driver honked the horn as it pulled up beside him. Three men were squished into the cab along with Devante. The 10A, the man shouted at him through the open window. Whatever he wanted, Matt was done. He turned toward the thick jungle, but his feet tangled in the underbrush, and he went down hard. The impact winded him, and by the time he got his breath back, the men were on him. Matt fought, but the combined strength was too much. They forced him to his feet and walked him to the truck. This was effed up beyond belief. What, he, what had he gotten himself caught up in? His heart pounded and his hands shook uncontrollably. When they reached the road, Father Devante was waiting. You are lucky we caught up with you. You don't understand what kind of trouble you could have gotten yourself into. He couldn't let them sense his fear. He'd sworn he'd never be at someone's mercy ever again. Controlling his nerves, he relaxed his stance and stared Devante down. I've done nothing. Let me go or I'll report you. Devante shook his head. You have things all wrong. I mean you no harm. I'm here to help you. Well, you have a pretty effed up way of helping people. Matt tried to break free, but the men were too strong. Devante said something to Matt's captors in Spanish. Two of the men tightened their holds while the third released him and walked back to the truck. The man returned with a first aid kit. Let me see your hands, Devante ordered. He opened the kit, took out a bottle of rubbing alcohol and a rag. What are you doing? Matt tried to pull his hand away. Look, I have some money. I'll give it to you if you let me go. I'm not interested in your money and I'm not going to hurt you. Father Devante looked sincere and there was an honest appeal in his voice. Was the fake blood toxic or something? Matt extended his hands. There was no hiding, but the statue's blood was still on his finger. Good, Devante looked satisfied. You are lucky you are not cut. The priest poured the rubbing alcohol over the stain and scrubbed with the rag. He studied Matt's fingers again, nodded, and then inspected Matt's clothing. I need to look through your bag. No, you can't take it. Everything I have is in there. My passport, my plane ticket. I fly home tomorrow. I do not wish to cause you grief. I only want to search your belongings to be sure none of the blood got on them. I will return your things when I let you go. Well, there was a way out of this. Fine, he handed it over. The old man would take the water bottle, but so what? He could have it, and then Matt could get the hell out of there. Father Devante rummaged through the bag and laid, it all out, laid out all the contents on the hood of the truck. He put Matt's clothing, plane ticket, and passport back in the knapsack. What have we here? The old man's priest hardened when he found the water bottle containing the blood. What do you think you were doing with this? He spun to his assistant and shouted some instructions. How did you learn about the statue? Who do you work for? Damn, this wasn't going as planned. 
He needed to play it off like he didn't have any idea. What was he thinking? He didn't have any idea. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm just a tourist. While I was looking at the statue, the blood started coming out of it. You expect me to believe that? He accused just as the man arrived with the rifle. I want the truth, Devante demanded. Matt's knees buckled. He'd never had a gun pointed at him before. This was going sideways really fast. Okay, I'll tell you, just put the effing gun down. Devante pushed the barrel down. I know a girl who's studying art in college. She thinks the sculptures might be done by some famous priest and asked me to photograph them. It's some kind of an assignment to pass a course. When I was taking the pictures, the statue started to drift. I thought it was a prank. Devante studied Matt's face for what felt like an hour before he appeared to relax. Your eyes suggest that you speak the truth. I am, I do. Check, check out those papers, they'll prove I'm not lying. Devante spent considerable time going over Victoria's instructions. Finally, he nodded and stuffed the papers back into their envelope. The documents satisfy me. You have no idea how lucky you are that we caught you. What you have done could have had very grave consequences. He pointed at the water bottle. This belongs in Rome, not in your possession. This was the second time Devante had mentioned that there could be trouble. Wasn't this trouble enough? He couldn't imagine what this guy's definition of real trouble was. All he wanted was to get out of there with Victoria's pictures and get back home. Unfortunately, as he'd feared, the priest went straight for his phone. What's your passcode? Go to hell. Devante gave a few more instructions in Spanish, and his man pointed the rifle again. This was going to be disastrous. Assuming he even got out of there alive, what would he tell Victoria? Okay, okay, this isn't worth dying over. Matt gave them his passcode. Following a thorough inspection, Devante turned to Matt. No suspicious messages, but the pictures are concerning. Since we have no reception here, I know they were not transmitted. However, I'm afraid I must destroy your phone. I can't have them distributed. Matt went numb. Besides losing Victoria's pictures, the phone was worth a lot of money. Just delete them. I may be an old man, but I know that nothing is ever truly deleted. Devante took the water bottle, Victoria's instructions, and Matt's phone and placed them in the truck. He handed Matt's remaining belongings back to him. You must promise never to tell anyone what you saw and forget that this ever happened. Thank God he was getting out of there alive. I promise no one would believe me anyway. Without another word, Devante and his three companions returned to the truck and drove away. When the truck disappeared the way it had come, Matt's hands started trembling again. What in the hell had just happened? One minute he was at peace with the world, the next he was held at gunpoint for taking some fake blood. This was so effed up he would have never believed it had he not been living it. No one else would have believed him either. He needed to get out of there before they changed their minds and came back. Without his phone, he couldn't even call for help. Matt turned for town and started running. Now what was he supposed to do? There were no pictures from Victoria. How would she take the news? Matt stopped in his tracks. What if she'd known what she'd been getting him into? He looked back to make sure no one was coming. He couldn't imagine Victoria risking his life, but he knew. After all, he hardly knew her. One thing was for sure, she owed him some answers, no matter how hot she was. That was awesome. <laughs> Thank you. So question I have when I was like reading through the book is, do you have a favorite character? And was there a character that you had a hard time writing for? Uh, yes, um, Matt's definitely my favorite character. 
uh, in some ways I identify with him with some of the struggles he goes through, although, uh, you know, some of his uh, family issues with his father and stuff couldn't be farther away from, from my experience, but I, I really enjoyed writing him. Uh, the, the character that I had the most trouble actually writing was, uh, was Victoria. Um, I, at my first drafts, she was, uh, you know, just pretty compliant with everything Matt wanted and stuff. And I, I, I really had to uh, work hard to, to have her have her own voice. Mm -hmm. um, well, in terms of like favorite characters, I have to say my favorite character is definitely Lawrence, uh, Victoria's grandfather. What was it like writing him? Um, he, I, I really enjoyed him too. And uh, I actually, uh, the, the inspiration for him uh, came from a Terry Goodkind book, um, the, uh, um, uh, the uh, Sword of Truth, um, the main character's uh, father in that. And uh, that's where I got a lot of the inspiration uh, for that character. I, I liked him. He was uh, obviously, um, had traveled the world, had a lot of, a lot of uh, interesting experiences behind him, um, but just really just enjoyed life and enjoyed his granddaughter. Awesome. Um, so the first few chapters of your book, as you kind of mentioned, are your introductory chapters. Um, and they seem somewhat unrelated as your first reading through. I was just wondering if you had planned to start off the story with those different viewpoints or if you just kind of came upon that later in your writing process. Once yeah, you had all that laid out. Yeah, my, my intention there was definitely to start off uh, basically three separate stories um, at the same time and then have them uh, start weaving together. Uh, so um, the, the, you know, the prologue kind of just gives you a little hint of, of, of what the history is. Uh, but then chapters one, two, and three, as I introduced the main characters, uh, each basically have their own storyline. So that, that was intentional from the start. Um, and as a prospective editor, um, I'm really interested to know what kind of process you went through and whether your initial manuscript was really anything like the final product um, or like, just really how much it changed. And if you had to do um, a lot of research to actually to get through uh, everything you wanted in your novel. Yeah, well, the, the editing process taught me a lot as a, as a debut writer. Um, as I got involved with my editor, uh, Danielle Fine is, is her name. Um, uh, she really worked uh, very collaboratively with me, really pushed me uh, to, uh, to really improve my writing. Uh, but as far as the editing affecting um, the actual uh, flow of the story, uh, there were one or two chapters that we cut, and one or two chapters that we added. Uh, but to the most part, the the, uh, the plot remained uh, very, very close to my first draft. Awesome. So yeah. out, of, um, out of those chapters that you've mentioned that had gotten cut, was there anything in them that you were really wanting to, to keep, like that you really fought for, um, or that you maybe decided that, you know what, I'm going to take this and use it for another project? Um, kind of yes and no. The, uh, uh, the, the chapters that I cut, you know, obviously I, I was fond of a few of them because, you know, you put a lot of work into writing them. Um, but the, the main goal, I always, I always knew the, the, uh, where I needed to get to. And I created uh, the rules of this world, um, you know, as far as uh, what the demons' limitations were and, uh, you know, so what they could do, what they couldn't do. So I had to be very mindful 
uh, to write uh, the various scenes to not break those rules. And so that, that's what forced me the most to change some of my original uh, ways of getting to, my, to the results I was seeking. Okay. Um, so with that, so you're saying that you essentially, did you have that ending of the novel already in mind? Like, were you writing towards that end? Or did you kind of get there through your first draft and figure out how you wanted it to end through writing? I, I had the climax uh, that night when I woke up from the dream. So I, I, I knew the ending. Uh, but what I didn't know, um, um, my original ending was simply the ending of the story. Um, and then obviously, if you read the book, there is definitely a few things hanging out there now. So mm -hmm. the ending did change somewhat uh, in, the, in the last uh, scene where there's the battle uh, that basically leaves the opening for uh, really wondering what happened to some of the some of the characters uh, in that battle. Okay, um, so do you have uh, another project that you have planned that we should be keeping an eye out that's related to the Crimson Dimension or unrelated? Yeah, absolutely. I'm currently writing the sequel, which is uh, uh, titled The Crimson Decision, and uh, that basically picks up right after this uh, this story wraps up and uh, and goes through a whole process of Matt and Victoria uh, really finding their way uh, with this new reality that they're that they're a part of and uh, this uh, this one's actually um, uh, proven to be a little bit more difficult to write for me because um, I, I definitely know where it needs to go and come by, but I didn't wake up with a dream with this one. It's not all painted in my mind. Uh, so it's, uh, it's fun. It's a lot of fun. And are you working with the same editor for the sequel? Um, I'm not at this point yet. I'm still uh, grinding out the, uh, the first draft and I want to go through a few edits myself first uh, before I get her involved again, but that's definitely my intention, yes. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. And if you don't mind my asking, are you planning on making it like a trilogy or how many more installments are you thinking? Because <laughs> I'm interested. Absolutely, the, the sequel will, will be done for sure. Um, then I guess I, I do have a few other ideas for a few other stories that, uh, you know, that I've been playing around with for a while. And one of them I'm kind of itching to write. Uh, but just, I guess, depending on the feedback that I, uh, that I get as I, as I get, uh, you know, book two out in that. Um, the way this one ends, there definitely is more story after that again. So uh, a third, uh, third book, I think, is definitely in the future. Whether I, whether I take a little bit of time off to write one other one in between, I'll still have to decide. Thanks. Um, so one thing, when I was reading through, I noticed there was so much description with um, architecture. Because um, Victoria is an artist, she does um, the sculpting. Did you have to do lots of research for for that? Was that kind of did, did it seem difficult finding that information, or was it fun to kind of dig through it and figure out what you wanted to add in? Yeah, I, I definitely did a fair bit of of, uh, of research because most of the of, of those detailed elements of, of the novel, I have no personal knowledge of whatsoever. So. Uh, you know, just even the types of sculptures that she was doing. Um, uh, you know, there's the uh, the one scene where they're trying to figure, uh, you know, blood type, that blood that he had found. I had to do a lot of research into, you know, 
how they go about, uh, uh, you know, um, doing lab tests on blood. Uh, a lot of the locations in New York, uh, I did a lot of research on, you know, even, even simple questions like, do they still have pay phones on the streets of New York City? You know, just because I, I definitely wanted all of the real, real world settings to be as accurate as I could. So I did a fair bit and I enjoyed it. It was, it was really fun to dig into into some of those items, even even tracking the uh, um, uh, the subway trip times between uh, New Jersey and, and New York and, and whatnot, it was it was just really fun to get into that uh, into that world. Yeah, I liked how I definitely loved how the, your your writing essentially just puts the audience, puts the reader in the situations, um, and I I really liked. I don't know if you have. Um, and you notice that you were taking on like characteristics of your characters, um, but how the chapters that were from different points of view, how it it really put you in their perspective, and how you could later on you could sort of tell what like Matt was thinking when it was a Victoria focused chapter. Um, did you have to have like a wall of sticky notes to have yeah, <laughs> those personality yeah. traits? I don't have a whole lot of room for sticky notes, but I have spreadsheets and I have you know, uh, photos that uh, inspire me about the characters, a list of their traits and things uh, and things like that. So uh, it was really interesting at the beginning, you know, I had to go to those notes quite often, um, but as the, the, the more and more I wrote them, it, it sounds odd to say, but the characters basically started telling me what they would do and how what they would say and how they would react. So they really came to life uh, uh, to me, and it was it was it made it so much easier to to write them because I, I knew them as people, and I knew I basically knew uh, how they would how they would treat the situations that they were put in. So, did you kind of um, flip flop between characters when you're writing, or did you sort of write from one character's perspective through plot points, and then figure that it would be better from a different character's point of view? Uh, right from the beginning, I I intended to do multiple points of view. Um, Robert Jordan's The Wheel of Time is a fantastic series of, of books, uh, my, my, my favorite series by far, and he has multiple, multiple characters all with their own points of view woven through that story. So that's, that's what kind of inspired uh, the way that I uh, came at this, at this story, was to look at each of them. Um, another thing for me too, when, when I was writing uh, each chapter, uh, to me, I could see the scene play out, and I and I basically wrote what I saw. Uh, so a few people have commented that it, you know it, it kind of reads almost like a movie as opposed to uh, more of a novel or whatever, and and that's because um, my my mind works in a very visual way, and I basically write what I see. Yes. Yeah. I reading that. I was actually also thinking that it would definitely translate into a movie very well. Is that something that if the opportunity um, came about that you would be interested in is turning it into a movie or? With, without a question, if, uh, if by some miracle I was approached by, uh, by uh, you know, some group saying, hey, we'd like to do a screenplay on this, uh, that, that, would be a, that would be a thrill. That, that, would, that would just be such an honor for someone to even, you know, take that kind of interest. Awesome. Um, okay, well, is there anything else that you wanna tell us about? Um, the process that you took while you were um, coming up with with the novel and putting all the pieces together. Yeah, it was 
it, it was a it was a very interesting journey as a you know indie author um, you know um, just in the process of trying to get your work out um, the whole editing process you know was a huge eye opener with me and uh, and again you know I, I really thank my editor Danielle for all the patience and uh, and hard work she put in with me um, but uh, there's there's a ton of resources out there for uh, for anybody that's considering getting into the writing. Uh, there's piles of uh, stuff on YouTube. Some really good uh, um, people that host uh, uh, channels on you know how to write everything from plotting to character development to what not to do and everything. So I, I did a, I, I used a lot of those resources as well uh, as I went along. Uh, and then of course it never hurts to have uh, friends and family uh, take some read-throughs. And uh, as long as they're honest, and they'll tell you. You'll tell you, they'll tell you when you're producing crap or whether it's uh, whether it's good because you you don't want to hear just uh, you know you know like the, your mom loves you no know, even matter what right so um, but just that whole experience of, of going through it uh, has just been uh, amazing I would have never uh, dreamt uh, years ago that I would actually be an author and uh, just going through the process and stuff it's it's been incredibly rewarding. Do you have any final words for any prospective authors, people who just have ideas in their brain? Got any? Got any advice? Yeah, just just start. Um, just go for it. Just start writing. Um, you know, work work out on work out your plot. Um, there's you know there's a couple different ways around it. You can you can plot everything out, and then uh, a lot of your hard work's done, and you got to write the story to match. Or you can just go by the seat of your pants. Uh, but then you're looking at a lot of rewrites. But uh, but whichever way whichever way you want to tackle it, just get into it. Um, uh, get those free online uh, uh, help that that you know to, uh, to kind of guide you. But just have fun with it. It's it's very rewarding. And for people who are kind of looking for an editor, um, how would you uh, recommend they kind of they they find somebody who might be able to to help them do a final go through yeah my, my process was was kind of interesting i i had actually hired danielle originally she does fantastic uh, cover art too she did she did the cover art uh, for my novel and uh, i didn't know that she also was an editor and uh, i had already started working with a different editor and uh um you know we were just chatting and she said you know hey if you want send me a few chapters i'll have a look and uh i'll, I'll do a few edits and just see how how we how we jive so uh, that and that was the important thing is that uh, you know get a sample chapter back and just see if the two of you work well together. Um, you know, you, her suggestions always resonated with me. Uh, I, I liked you know the the comments she had. Um, she was very truthful, very honest, what you need. So uh, you just have to start searching for uh, you know for an editor uh, and just make sure that they're the right one for you. Okay. Well, thank you very much for doing this event and making your novel. It's amazing. I'm going to read it again and again and again, for sure. That's, um, that's uh, very flattering to hear that. Thank you. Okay. Well, um, I'd also like to kind of finish off our, our little segment here. Um, I would do like to do a final um, thank you to the Rosé Foundation because they are the ones who made this online reading series possible. Uh, their amazing donations. 
And um, I would also like to let audience members know that we have um, some more uh, installments in the series coming up. And our next one is going to be on July 21st at 7 p.m. Uh, it's going to be live on YouTube. And it's, you're going to be able to hear Dorothy Bentley talk about and read from her book, Summer Northcoming. It's a uh, children's poetry book. It's a picture book. And it's a really great read if that's something you're interested in or you got kids that would be interested in it. Um, scoop them all up, put them in front of the, the screen, and uh, let them listen. And have a good night. Thank you very much.